This time, we're nuking the fridge after watching Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And along the way, we ask, why was there a time when Shia LaBeouf was a hot commodity? When did thrilling action get replaced by cheap gimmicks? And was this the beginning of the end for Steven Spielberg? It's not the years, it's the mileage on this edition of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Force-Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, <laughs> Sean Culp. Our, and no, this, no, neg, no name this no, week. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> and this time we are discussing Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Very excited about this. I'm a longtime fan of Indiana Jones. So when it came up, woo, sci-fi, baby. Yeah. I remember being uh, very excited for this when I was a, a younger man. Yeah. Because uh, Indiana Jones was a very big part of my childhood. And uh, looking back on Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom, those are not family-friendly films. <laughs> no, in hindsight, I, I watched uh, Temple of Doom and Raiders in preparation to this. And holy cow, there's a lot of murder. He murders everyone. Like cold blood. Yeah, and he, he just gets away with it, too. Yes, and he nonchalantly sleeps with his students as well as uh, just bangs anyone that comes his way. It's kind of... When you think of Indiana Jones as a human being, he's really not a deplorable individual. Well, and also, too, Indiana Jones isn't the first uh, thought when you have thinking of sci-fi. No, not at all. And uh, I think we can thank George Lucas for that. Yeah, he finally wore Steven Spielberg down to get aliens. Surprise, spoilers. So let's provide a, a brief synopsis on Crystal Skull before we move on. Though following his escape after being captured by Soviet scientists, Indiana Jones teams up with a teams up with a young rebel and ventures to South America to search for a friend who disappeared while searching for an ancient civilization, and they'll discover that maybe Earth isn't alone in the universe. Ooh. I mean like I said, Indiana Jones isn't your first thought of thinking of sci-fi, and, it, and it's weird plopping him down into the, the world of science fiction because he's a he's a man of religion and knowledge. Yeah, not this speculative fiction. Exactly, it's introducing uh, aliens aliens into archaeology. Which I mean, I guess if you talk to your uh, local conspiracy theorists, they might say the uh, Egyptians may have been from outer space. Who knows? But that's definitely, it's it's a curveball for Indiana Jones because we've had three movies where he's delved into religion and spirituality, but never sci-fi. I think that the History Channel show Ancient Aliens really kind of ruined the whole prospect of maybe this was an ancient civilization that was able to build these impressive things just because they had the gumption and knowledge to do so. Not because, you know, Bleeborp came down and showed them how to do it. Yeah, right? <laughs> but this is saying Bleeborp is real. <laughs> <laughs> right. Basically. And uh, I guess Dan Aykroyd will co-sign that for sure. <laughs> so, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, mm -hmm. obviously the fourth entry in the Indiana Jones series, directed by Steven Spielberg, who directed all of the previous Indiana Jones films. Yeah. Uh, You'd think, it, so on paper, this seems amazing. Right. You got you got all the guys back from the original. You got the cast back from the original. One of the best one. You know, everyone's super pumped. So on paper, it looks great. But in execution, 
Not so much. <laughs> yeah, it, it, like Sean said, we have some of the original cast returning. Obviously, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. Uh, Karen Allen returns to the screen as Marion Ravenwood. Mm-hmm. And some newcomers to the series. We have Shia LaBeouf as Mutt Williams, who we later find out is his son. Yeah, which spoilers. is weird. <laughs> and then we got what Ray Winstone and then uh, John Hurt. It, those it, those are some classic uh, actors there. In addition, there's Kate uh, Blanchett as Arena yeah. uh, Spalco, who who's who's great actress. She's great term. in everything. She is. It doesn't matter. She is. It's kind of crazy watching her in this do the Russian accent. And I think back to Lord of the Rings with her as an elf. It's just it's mind blowing. But it definitely shows the uh, her range. She also played Bob Dylan. So oh yeah yeah she played is. Catherine Hepburn. Super un- or underrated, maybe. So she's got great range. She does. <laughs> if she can play a man. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, Sean Connery was also offered the chance to reappear in the series as Indy's father, but he turned it down as he enjoyed retirement too much. Yes, and I heard that uh, he just, because they were doing an interview about the James Bond when Skyfall came out, because we've talked about that, how they were going to try and plug him into Skyfall. And uh, he said his role in this movie wasn't going to be anything significant. So no. why leave retirement to just be nostalgia, you know? But I don't know. He's like one of those old school actors where they just they didn't make movies to just make a paycheck, I guess, right. maybe. And then on the opposite end of the Connery spectrum, we'll call it, John Rice davies was also offered the chance to return to his role of Sala, but he wanted a more prominent role in the film. Right. And sorry. <laughs> I mean, this film, I would say, didn't need him in it, though it would have maybe made it more interesting. But he probably would have fallen in line with the list of people not having anything to do. So they just shoehorn them in as driving the duck. Spielberg probably just had to sit him down like, John, I don't think you understand the concept of a gimmick. <laughs> right. We're not paying you millions. Right. <laughs> but actually, um, I heard, I read that Ford... Uh, Spielberg and Lucas deferred their salary up front and just took a portion of the box office because the film had to make like I think 400 million in order to turn a profit and it did gross a bunch so they got their share well their original deal with Paramount was originally for five films really yeah and they but the series all it ended after the last crusade came out in 89 yeah and which is is still one of the best supposedly trilogy ending films ever at least i consider it to be absolutely it ended perfectly it ended it ended the same way every western does with their our heroes riding off into the sunset and the great raiders march playing as the credits roll i mean you can't drop a more perfect ending to a series than that yep but you know when money calls <laughs> you answer you know i don't even know if it was about the money because th- this idea of having aliens as part of the fourth film is has been one that's been ruminating for a while yes but there was a bunch of alien films that came out in the early 90s and even mid 90s because i think they were all set to go to production in 1996 and then a little movie called independence day came out (laughs) and it kind of took the took the wind out of the sail and and george lucas what i've read is he's been wanting so bad to throw aliens into the indiana jones series since the beginning but 
Spielberg, as a younger man, was able to defer and be like, no, George, no, 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 no. We want to make good movies here. Well, I guess the Star Wars films just didn't fix <laughs> the need for George Lucas to put aliens in everything. It blows my mind that Red Tails didn't have aliens in right? it. It seems like everything he touches has aliens. Just a UFO scooping in to <laughs> abduct one of the Tuskegee Airmen and be like, what's happening? <laughs> I was shooting down German jets and all of a sudden I'm in Mars. <laughs> this is the true story of Red Tails. You know, I was looking up God. actually like what that what that script looked like in the mid 90s mm-hmm. um i think one of the, the major plot point was indy gets married at the beginning of the film but his bride aban- leaves him at the altar and runs off to south america and indy chases her to find out why she left hmm. and then the soviets were involved in all that and that, right away that would have added this whole air of mystery to the film yeah you know, why why did my beloved leave me at the altar yeah. Which also begs the question, who leaves Harrison Ford at the altar? Right. Because that man, he's a good-looking guy. Oh, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison <laughs> Ford? I mean, I I am not gay, but that is a snack <laughs> right there. <laughs> Snack-o-matic. Uh, yeah, you know, that would be a much more interesting film, and it would take a, uh, a more interesting path for uh, Indiana Jones, because you really never see him losing someone like that like he always it's his you know i guess that's his red shirt always that the woman dies and he always film. seems to bounce back pretty quick though from like yeah from a broken heart exactly i mean temple of doom ends with him in willie scott or the screamers we can call her God. embracing at the end and then i mean obviously they they split up yes. but i mean I, I don't think indy would have been able to put up with her screaming all the time but steven spielberg did because he ended up marrying that lady <laughs> yeah, that, married while watching that film i'm like oh he just loves hearing her scream it's kind of not be- to go on on too much of a sidebar but there's a great behind the scenes vignette from temple of doom when she had all the the bugs crawling all over mm-hmm. and she was gonna freak out so they actually pumped her full of like uh muscle relaxant no way and, and steven spielberg was telling her all right kate we're gonna put all these these bugs on you and she goes okay steven okay steven okay steven oh my god yeah. it's freaky how oh, she shit. can recall that oh my god that's <laughs> well yeah <laughs> Well, right. I actually saw that uh, they got they uh, they actually hired M Night Shyamalan to write a new script in the late '90s, but he left the project as he found it too daunting. Yeah, and then proceeded to go write a whole bunch of clunkers. <laughs> was this pre? Uh, what is that? I see sense. dead people. I, I think it was uh, right around that same time when he was the hottest new thing in filmmaking. That's right, and then he wasn't <laughs> so how my how the tables will turn <laughs> what, wow an indiana jones film with m night shamala hamala with a twist that would just be something man well i think the, uh, i think spielberg and lucas and ford they all wanted to continue on to the series but they just couldn't find the right way to do it no they they've tried for years it took them 19 years to finally pull the script together and it's easy to see why harrison ford returns to the roles time and time again oh you could tell he has so much fun on screen being indiana jones yeah he came out a couple maybe months or last year or so where they were talking about they asked him if you wanted to would you allow a reboot of indiana jones he said no this role is going to die with me i'm going to do this role until i die because he just he loves it he he hates han solo but he loves indiana jones well, there's a great interview I think he did with Barbara Walters about 15 years ago when she asked him, would you consider returning to play Indiana Jones? And he has this 
great line of in a New York minute. He he absolutely loves the role, and it, it's so rare to find an actor who cherishes the role that they're now most associated with. I mean, Daniel Craig, I mean, could take a page from Harrison Ford. <laughs> right. Love Daniel Craig, but when you say you'd rather slit your wrists and play James Bond again, uh, uh, that's bad. <laughs> you're great in Knives Out. You're amazing as James Bond. That's all I got to say. <laughs> right. He, and Harrison Ford wasn't even going to get the role. The little uh, um, background for people that have never seen it. George didn't want to cast him because he felt, you know, uh, with Empire and New Hope as well as uh, American Graffiti, George didn't want to seem like a one-trick pony. You know, I always cast Harrison in all my movies, but Spielberg took him and alas, four films. Now, Tom Selleck was the first choice to play Indiana <laughs> oh Jones, and there there are a lot there there are screen tests of him in the jacket and the hat running through the uh, the intro scene with Marion. Yeah, he, it's crazy. Whenever I, I picture Tom Selleck, I just picture a giant mustache. So now I'm seeing a giant mustache with an Indiana Jones head. You know, it kind of worked out for Tom Selleck because he went off to do a show called Magnum P.I., so it was shot on Hawaii and he drove around Ferrari and, you know, hit on all the single women who apparently had all the information about all the crimes in Hawaii. <laughs> So I, in the long run, I think it still worked out for Tom Selleck. Yeah, he's still. So f let's talk about what is an Indiana Jones. There's always a layout, right? In all these films, there's something. There's. Let's discuss it to the viewers that have never watched or aren't don't recall. So in every Indiana Jones, there's an opening sequence where I view it as him getting roughed up in some in some fashion. In Ark, he's trying to steal some gold statue and there's the um, famous cannonball chase scene. Well, it's very much done in the style of the old 30s and 40s action serials where it ends and then like, tune in next week to find out what happens to our intrepid adventurer. Yes. Yes. That's exactly how it feels. Well, and, and, and it leads right into the next. So like you were saying with Raiders in that cold open, we see we, we get to meet Belloc for the first time and he's he's the 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 villain rival of Indy throughout the film, and it, it the rest of the film set up in the same way. Um, I think Raiders is still the the be all and end all of the series, but uh, the the films unfold in a way that's not dissimilar to the James Bond films. And I've always called Indiana Jones as like a poor man's James Bond. It's still the same ideas of male escapist fantasy, but James Bond is just more elegant more refined than indiana jones yes he's not using a whip he's using crazy gadgets from q whereas indiana jones is more resourceful with literally nothing and donning that sexy head and leather jacket baby yeah we've, we've all dressed up as indiana <laughs> oh, jones for halloween it's why i have my brown leather jacket yeah. now <laughs> but in all of his films there's also a heavy there's a damsel in distress or some woman that he ends up wedding and then there's always the big archaeological find, the MacGuffin, and then at the end, a big climactic scene that ends with either some religious elements or spiritual elements. What I find great about the endings of the films, though, is that Indy never winds up with the artifact that he set out to find in the first place. The, the Ark of the Covenant winds up in some warehouse out in the middle of nowhere. He doesn't get the, he returns those stones to the village in Temple of Doom, and the Holy Grail is lost to eternity. It's it's this amazing concept of, you know, ultimately, maybe you're not meant to find these these relics of a, of a time forgotten. Yeah, because they're all so important. 
like the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail, you can live forever. I mean, these things could really change the course. And I think that's like his, while he's a deplorable individual, that's like his one moral twist where it's like, oh, okay, you're well, not a terrible human being. It reinforces the power of belief. Because if you, if you can't see that item, then you, you kind of disc, you discount it for what it is. Like the Ark of the Covenant, he, you know, once it's open, he tells Marion, you know, close your eyes. Like you're, you're, we're not meant to see what's in there. Like, yeah, it's cool. We found this, but opening it and showing it to the world, it ruins the mystery and it takes away the power of belief. Exactly. In Doom, he says, she's like, you aren't going to give the stone to the museum. He said, no, it would just end up collecting dust somewhere. These people need it more than we do, which once again, it shows, I think that's always his redeemable quality. But this film, so why then does this film fall flat? Well, I think you have to look firstly at the historical context of the film when it's set in. The original films were set in the mid to late 1930s. This uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is set in 1957. So there's already a lot of historical context floating around with just set it with the setting alone there is the anti-communism red scare there's this rise in nuclear power and technology uh, there's also all the interesting archaeological finds at this point like have already kind of like come and gone there's nobody racing across the desert looking for occult artifacts anymore which made those those earlier films so exciting was in two of them the nazis were looking for these other world artifacts because they were actually doing that in the 1950s i mean i can't find a whole lot of information about the soviets sending anybody across the world to look for you know ancient artifacts that will give them mind control abilities no there's nothing there <laughs> at all and even the whole landscape of how colleges were portrayed as protesting communism and everything i tried finding pictures and things of high college students at cambridge or whatnot and there's nothing yeah, Indy teaches at the fictional Marshall College. It's in Connecticut. He's in the northeastern part of the country, which is like the bastion of liberal democracy. So it, it, it's it's hard to imagine that uh, an affluent campus like Marshall is this home to anti-communism activity. And this, I mean, granted, this the setting of the film isn't that far removed from the Army McCarthy hearings, but the whole idea of the Red Scare at this point in history just kind of seemed like just bunk at this point. Yeah, it's not... It wasn't, I didn't believe it. I wish they would have done it either in the 60s with, you know, actual civil rights movements or just use something different entirely, like King Tut's, like the freaking pyramid that no one can get into. Yeah, that, well, that's way more interesting. Well, it's than, also still pretty far removed from the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we're not exactly adversarial with the Soviets at this point. Yeah, are they a threat? Sure. But they're not going to be sending nuclear weapons across the pond anytime soon. <laughs> right. I think that is that's a problem with the film is there's no because it's not grounded in history like the others have been. It's really hard to lay claim as who's the big baddie because we see at the beginning the U.S. is portrayed as like nuclear warheads and bombs as the bad guy because you know how Lucas loves hating on capitalism and the United States despite being a billionaire. And then they didn't all out say the Russians are terrible people either because, 
you know, the the Cold War is, but it's not as big of a threat due to the, the Bay of Pigs and all that. It's also painting the government, the FBI, in a bad light, too, because yeah. immediately after Indy meets the two government agents, his office is ransacked. Yeah, he loses his job. Yeah, and his be- and one of his best friends has to resign, and Indy's going to go li- teach in England or Switzerland to a more enlightened part of the world. Exactly. And I think that's a big problem with this film, because the first three, it's very stark good guy bad guy and i know that's a trope and like but with these films that was the setup you know it's not this meta gray (laughs) and neana jones is not meta it's never been meta and trying to make it meta i think fell short you just can't he's this playboy and he feels more like a fish out of water in this film compared to the other films he's not the confident Mm -hmm. knowledgeable swashbuckling adventurer that we've seen before he's He's almost more like his dad from The Last Crusade. Yeah. He seems tired and just ready to go home. He even he even quotes him when they're escaping in the jungle by going, this is intolerable. Yeah. I mean, and he's still very rigid in his thinking regarding the schooling of his son, who eventually when he finds out he's his son, he has that line, why the hell did you make him finish school? <laughs> oh, like, oh, now you care. <laughs> now it's an issue. That was so great. I love those setups. I mean, this movie, because I don't want to hate on it all the way, because I th- I liked a lot of elements in this film oh, with like Shia LaBeouf and Harrison Ford. Those setups and takedowns with the exposition were phenomenal. But unfortunately, it's bogged down just by bad history lousy writing with characters that go nowhere you like never hear about the fbi guys again at the end uh the nazis just keep following them around due to the you know double agent guy and it just it's unfortunate because i feel like this film could have been so much better how did you feel about what's his name mac mac uh he's a confounding character i will say i mean introducing him right off the bat as this sidekick he doesn't seem particularly knowledgeable about any sort of history or archaeological digs or anything like that so it it makes me question in the first place why he's even there i mean is he the bodyguard is he there to do some sifting digging what is mac's job in service to indy exactly and in every film with indiana jones his guy that he's with in the first five ten minutes always ends up dying but Max stays around for some reason. Well, and there's always somebody with him, too. He always has some type of sidekick, whether it's Sala and Raiders or Short Round and Doom or even his dad in, in The Last Crusade. There's always somebody. I mean, and all of a sudden, you know, halfway through the film, turns out his sidekick is his kid. Right. It's so <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah. How did you feel about um, Shia LaBeouf? with his like whole portrayal because uh, you definitely i know you mentioned it it's it seems like it was taken out of the page of james dean and marlon brando there's a lot about the film that feels like spielberg's quote-unquote love letter to the 1950s and the epitome of that is shia labeouf because right away he looks like marlon brando from the wild one (laughs) and he's doing pretty much every single james dean Marlon Brando impression yeah, that he possibly can do. And even at that point in history, that all feels anachronistic because I think it's just a trope of doing a 50s film is you're going to have a conflict with the greasers and the jocks are going to go at it. <laughs> and the problem is there are no other greasers. Everyone there looks like either a college athlete, a college student, 
or a man wearing a suit. What would have been funnier is if they all went out into the street in that cafe and like, there's going to be a rumble. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Like jets and sharks just going at it. Exactly. But instead we didn't get that because this film, I think this film, why it suffers so much is these uh, Spielberg and George being old and kind of out of touch. You know, they say as you get older, you become more reserved, you know, not as edgy. And I feel that's why this film is way more family friendly than the first three, because Temple of Doom inspired PG-13 rating because it was so brutal and gruesome. Like he murders like 21, 22, 23 guys in that. Whereas this indie kills one guy through a blow dart. I mean, this film is just so laid back and I think that's just because Spielberg is you know he's a grandfather he's got a family kids grandchildren whereas in the 80s he was divorced he's still young in his 40s so he's still like that director that made Jaws whereas now he's had an established career uh, I'd argue that the the first three Indiana Jones films were made for the baby boomers Let's think about when Raiders came out. I mean, any baby boomer would have been in their mid to late 30s, even early 40s. And it's it's a treat to see, you know, somebody who's in your same age bracket go off on these grand adventures, hang out with, you know, a beautiful woman and, you know, punch Nazis in the face. I mean, right. that, because you're hearing stories. You're If you're a baby boomer, you're hearing stories from your dad about, oh, I, I killed 50 Nazis. That's right. So you can live vicariously yeah, through Yeah, you're Indy. living out your dad's fantasies by watching Indiana Jones. Yeah. And then this film, Crystal Skull, doesn't feel like that. It just feels like a kitty romp. Yeah, exactly. You got an, a bloated over CGI'd, which, you know, it's 08, so the CGI shouldn't have been as bad as it is in this film. Long scenes where... Well, it's not bad. It's just, you know making cgi prairie dogs doesn't help your cause (laughs) right or having long fencing on top of two vehicles with cgi plants hitting mutt in the balls right (laughs) and then the monkeys the swinging monkeys plus the waterfalls and all that i mean it just and i there with indiana jones you do have to suspend some disbelief right with like the him in uh temple of doom jumping out of the airplane with the raft but most of the film that's just like one scene right in each of them it's not the whole freaking film with him getting blown up in the refrigerator flying off of a cliff on the duck and landing on a tree then landing in the water going down giant waterfalls with the elderly i mean it's just it's what part there's only a certain tolerance that i can suspend my disbelief and it's fine for Spielberg to make his love letter film. Mm-hmm. Every filmmaker has one of these, but I just don't feel like this is the way to do it. No. And there's so many better ways. <laughs> and I, I don't like comparing this film to a current film, but I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the way to make a love letter film. I think you have every right to compare it to modern films because modern films struggle with love letters, mod- you know, and... Once Upon a Time in the Hollywood, it's such a breath of fresh air. It does everything exactly as it should, which is just so incredible due to being 2019. Well, it's a love letter film, especially if you're going to devote it to a particular era. Mm -hmm. It's not about paying homage to specific events or films. It's about embodying the spirit of the times. Whereas the 1950s, it it was a time of growing tension. And there could have been something in the film about 
you know, the, the in workplace environment changing or the attitudes towards scientific discovery changing. Could have been something like that, but there is nothing in there like that. Whereas Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has this fun, free-loving society and the growing change in entertainment shifting from television to films. It's it's no one is symbolic of one thing, but really the film itself is symbolic of the attitudes during the time. Exactly. And that's why this film fails, because they don't do that. They don't embody the uh, layout of a regular Indiana Jones film. They completely miss the mark. They don't embody the 50s at all. It almost feels like corporate meddling where they just shoved a bunch of crap like oh we need to have aliens oh we need to have the commies oh we need to have the russians uh let's just keep throwing all this crap in it because we don't know where to go to how to take these characters we're rushed with the script and it just it does it just falls flat i would say it's better like a modern depiction of this is the rise of skywalker absolutely with just corporate meddling but it's not that great it could have been better well, and this is really the beginning of the end for Spielberg. I mean, he doesn't, he simply doesn't thrill us like he's done in the past. And since this film's come out, he's made a Tintin, War Horse, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, Ready Player One. I mean, these are all good movies, but by no means are they the thrilling films that we saw in his early career. I think it's because he's become surrounded by a talent pool of filmmakers that have been inspired by him. And now he can no longer outdo himself. I mean, it's the same thing that happened to Tiger Woods within the last 15 years or so. Guys like Roy McElroy, Justin's, um, whatever their names are. <laughs> all these all these new, young, amazing golfers who have come out, who've come up after Tiger Woods came on the scene. Just think about how popular golf. Tiger Woods made golf. He did. He brought it into light. 90s, 2000s. He was insane. He was a phenomenon. Like, this guy. Think about the style of filmmaking Steven Spielberg pioneered in the late 70s and early 80s. Oh, yeah. Jaws, E.T. There's an entire generation of filmmakers who saw E.T. and Jaws and Raiders and thought to themselves, I want to make something like that. And we're seeing that now with individuals like J.J. Abrams, who is pretty much Steven Spielberg light. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard when the talent pool is so grandiose and a lot of people are copying what you did. It's really hard. To ha- Sometimes the copier is better than the actual original. Right. But he's getting... But I think it's just, you know, you get older. You start making less risks, you know. Start collecting a paycheck. You can only be creative for so long. I mean, I attribute it to musicians, you know. Musicians, what great artists in the 70s, right? They made insatiable music. But when you hear like the Scorpions, you know, their music from 2010, 2000s, it's like, oh, we just want to hear Rocky like a hurricane, man. Exactly. Because what was great, people tend to be more creative when they're younger. And as you get older, you tend to rely more on old tricks. And it sucks. But I mean, this film is aesthetically, technically great. You know, it's a beautiful picture. But the writing is where it fails. And I also... Well, I think George Lucas is a bad influence on Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Well, yes. So with this film, George has always wanted aliens as the MacGuffin. And you can actually read interviews where Spielberg to this day says he hates the idea of the aliens in the film, which kind of blows my mind. Why did you make a movie with the MacGuffin that you hated? 
it, I'm just speechless about that. But George, throughout the entire Indiana Jones franchise, has always wanted to introduce, let's say, uh, <laughs> edgy concepts. <laughs> like he wanted Indiana Jones and the Haunted House, which turned into Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Thank God. He wanted this one to be Indiana Jones and the Attack of the Giant Ants. No. Hence why there's that scene with the ants that eats people. And he's always wanted aliens. Now, why Indiana Jones, I think, in the 80s was more edgy is because George Lucas, I know you don't, you call have called him a hack a couple of times, right? Well, he is. And whereas I'm not as critical, I think George is, um, what would I, I'd say he's a savvy businessman and he's a mad scientist. He is the type of guy that when he writes a script, he throws in all these crazy ideas. He's like, yes, I want big trains and big explosions and these crazy aliens. And he needs someone to reel them in, you know, to be like, these are good starting points. But let's, 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 you know, chop off the edges. Let's, let's whittle it down. And in the 80s, I think Spielberg was great at that. But now in the 2000s, I think Spielberg's just like, you know what, whatever, man. But I have to think Spielberg listened to Lucas a bit, especially concerning the cgi like, oh lucas had to have been in his ear going just use computers David, it'll make everything easier dude when i was watching this i'm like this is giving me flashbacks to the prequels you think he would have learned <laughs> lucas would have learned after making the prequels and the backlash he got after all the cgi he used he even says that well lucas stated in the interview he's like i knew i was gonna get backlash on the cgi based on the prequels but i told steven it's okay you're gonna it, makes get it. it makes everything easier, Stephen. Yeah, it's cheaper. cheaper. Oh, side note, though, I actually learned that there's a quote-unquote proper way to watch the Star Wars films. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell me. Okay, so you got to watch Rogue One first, and then <laughs> go into A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and then go back to the prequel trilogies, watch Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, mm -hmm. finish it up with uh, Return of the Jedi, and then go into watching Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and then... Rise of Sky. Whether or not you want to watch Rise of Skywalker, we'll leave that up to you. Wow. I <laughs> You just totally ignore the Phantom Menace. And, <laughs> it's gone. It's a non-fact. Because it can be summed up with two sentences. There's a few battles. Obi-Wan meets Anakin and decides to teach him. That's, that's, that's the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Oh, yeah. This, this not film. To, well, not to divert too much. I mean, And you mentioned this earlier. This really felt like there were a lot of hands in the pot. Oh, yeah. And looking back on it now and seeing the films we're seeing now, especially with um, The Rise of Skywalker, this definitely feels like an early pioneer of the idea of fan service. Absolutely. It's a precursor to studio meddling. And you can see it. And it's really sad to see how far they've come. <laughs> because at least with this film, there's some scenes with relationships. But now it's just all fan service. All nostalgia. Well, even the idea of bringing back Marion Ravenwood is a huge, huge marker for that. Absolutely. I mean, this film had uh, Indy hit someone with a whip. They had the ancient people or the natives in it. Indy shoots at people. I mean, archaeology. Like it's, it's. You can look on YouTube and see scene by scene where it's just a rehash of things from the first three films that Spielberg took. And it's kind of funny because the writer. Spielberg is like it's a there's video behind the scenes and he's talking to the writer pre-production he's like yeah just write your own don't don't worry about the three films take nothing from the three films make your own original story and this is like the most least original that I've ever seen 
Well, are you ready for this week in toxic fandom? Oh, dude, there's so much. So much. (laughs) So much. Go on IMDb and check it out. I actually found a great uh, list from ScreenRant.com. Really? Yeah. It listed out 12 different points of why Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is a bad film. 12? I'm not going to go through all 12. (laughs) We don't have enough time. We've we've already talked about a few things um, already. One of the things they mentioned was this uh, idea of the underwhelming action in the film. And I tend to agree with that, especially with the opening scene, which you know just ends with nuking the fridge. And I think the redeeming action scene is the jungle vehicle chase, which up until the part where Shia LaBeouf gets taken up into the canopy and swinging through the vines, like that's when it becomes ridiculous. Well, there's also this lack of grit or darkness in the film compared to the other ones, which I will heavily agree with. And there's no interesting supporting characters. No, there just isn't. They do nothing. Miriam's or Miriam, Miriam's whole ge- her whole point was literally just to tell Indy that he has a son. That was the whole point, and it's really sad because then she's regulated to just driving the vehicles and doing nothing. Mutt was great at the beginning, helping Indy. They had that great chemistry dialogue between each other and the finds, and then he's just reduced to fighting Kate Blanchett fencing and doing nothing. Like, all of them do nothing except Indy at the end. Right. And also the introduction of the aliens. <laughs> I mean, really? Yeah. Even making them interdimensional doesn't really help because that makes no sense. I know. Not to me, anyway. No. I'm sure it makes sense to other people. And it it's made worse when John Hurt goes, well, not to space, to the space between spaces. And he says it like he's proud of that. I know. Like, you just... You have no lines of dialogue basically throughout this film except mumbling Henry Jones Jr. What you said made even less sense when you were rambling around in the camp going, through eyes at last I saw in tears. <laughs> oh, John Hurt, man. Like I get why the choice was made for the story mm. to, to introduce aliens and science fiction elements because it was going to reflect on films from the 1950s, but it seems like... No one really just came out and said they were aliens. No. Like, just say it. And that's We all know what they are. Exactly. And for a film that's supposed to be a callback to classic B-movie sci-fi films, it just doesn't. Why can't... They, they just... Throughout this film, they refuse to make a concrete statement. They don't want to say the Russians are bad because, God forbid, the Russians end up boycotting or doing something to, to the movie, which they ended up doing. They ended up not showing this film. They don't want to say America's bad because you don't want to like anger the public. Just make a choice. Just do it. Be edgy, Spielberg. Well, and also the Roswell incident hangs over this film like a like a cloud. And it's mentioned in the first act. And by the time it, the skull is reunited in Nakator, you've forgotten about that. You've forgotten about the big action sequence we had to open the film. You forgot about his interrogation. The first act means nothing at the end of the film. Kate Blanchett writes it off by saying, oh, maybe he's a distant cousin. It's like, okay, that was a great 20 minutes of my life. Well, what was Indy doing in Roswell anyway? He was an archaeologist. He wasn't any type of biologist or aircraft uh, specialist or whatever. He just has that one, you know, the little exposition. I was thrown into a car with no windows, with people that I wasn't allowed to talk to, with bright lights and shiny metal objects. It's like, okay. And? And you weren't supposed to be there. (laughs) 
awesome. So what did you find? I can't tell you. So wow, yeah, this is me- great dialogue. Awesome. I'm so happy. 30 seconds of my life is gone. Yeah, like <laughs> I, I we'll let you, the listener, draw your own conclusions as to what really happened at Roswell. <laughs> I'm trying I'm inclined to believe that nothing actually really happened. We did yeah, we, as we discussed in the uh, Men in Black episode. I was I think it's just this whole run on series of incidences with people getting blinding drunk and then winding up somewhere they shouldn't be going oh aliens did it (laughs) you know that would have been a better film if they just would have focused solely on roswell than this big alien crystal head just so many missed opportunities just to make a fun family film uh for toxic fandom you know nuke the fridge is a big thing as you said in the opening yeah that's now become part of the the entertainment parlance replacing jump the shark yeah nuke the fridge uh the monkeys obviously has been lambasted by reviewers and shia labeouf i know he got a lot of flack by saying that they dropped the ball on this movie yeah by like spielberg or ford called him an idiot (laughs) well speaking of idiotic things who'd you have for a red shirt sean uh red shirt red shirt so the only person that died by Indy was the guy blowing the blow dart and then yeah I would say the blow dart guy him or the guy that gets eaten by ants those are really the only two deaths where you just like see them and they serve a purpose at least for me how about you you know Mac was my red shirt Mac I mean at the end of the film he's just scooping up treasure and there's plenty of time to get up and accept help from Indy but he allows himself to get swept away by the spaceship and taken off to another dimension, we think. And the idea of keeping him like a double agent and not really on Indy's side was just unnecessary. It did nothing for the final 15 minutes of that film. No, well, you just don't care when he, in the, when he lets go. Because this whole film, he's just been screwing them over endlessly and lying. So it's like, really? This is going to be the emotional tearjerker moment? I don't care about this guy. He's a douchebag. Right. He literally serves no purpose in this film. So that is a good red shirt. That is. He could have lived. He chose not to. <laughs> literally, I've never. We haven't seen a movie yet where the entire main supporting act character is the red shirt. Right. They've gone the entire film and then ends up dying. It's usually some meaningless. So. Well, speaking of something meaningless, though, what'd you have for a lens flare? Lens flare. So my lens flare in the middle of the film, uh, you have no idea what Kate Blanchett is doing as the Russian. She doesn't really divulge her plan until Indy gets strapped into a chair, right? And he's supposed to stare at the crystal skull because he's going to mind meld with it because that's how John Hurt's character lost his marbles. He stared into the eyes too long, much like the sun. So while Indy's staring at this crystal skull and I guess it's taking over his mind, Kate Blanchett has this dialogue where she just does the stereotypical villainist, I'm going to give you my diabolical plan. And it's so ham-fisted, in-your-face, almost like it was recorded in a studio with this giant music in the background and flashy visuals. Yes, we will creep into your society. You will not know who we are. We will take you over, and you will blink, and you will not know that it is us. And you will be mind-controlled yourself, unknowing. And it's just like, wow. This is terrible. This is horrible. You have no idea. So I just watched this and said, "This is, it's terrible. It's so annoying. It doesn't need to be in the film. <sighs> How about you? Yeah, I think the easy one for me would be Shia LaBeouf 
swinging on the vines in the jungle with the little monkeys. But I have to go with the Siafu, the, those giant ants. And the idea of having a creature or a bug appear in in the, in the indie series is a common trope, but this just came out of nowhere for me. I mean, for starters, they're not even native to South America. They're they're found in Central, East, and South Africa, as well as tropical Asia. And they're actually beneficial to humans as they can eliminate nuisance pets that would normally eat crops. And it, it, yes, they can sting, but for them to strip a human like a like a pack of piranhas, it's it's very far fetched. And the the gag of having them in the film only just seemed to serve the nature of it. It, it wasn't it wasn't out of any sort of story sequence. No, there was no build up, no play. It just seemed like it was something Lucas wanted in the film, and Spielberg said, "Okay." <laughs> Listen, George, we, I know we've got all the CGI, but we have to add this. <laughs> you know what would be great? Doing an entire CGI scene with giant ants. That's what we want. Right. That's that's, that's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> so with all that in mind, let's discuss the legacy of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So 2008 was a pretty bannery year for films, and nerdy films in particular. Yes, Dark Knight was the highest grossing film of the year it shocked superhero culture became one of the uh one of my favorite films of all time yeah it's a pillar of the superhero genre it basically re revitalized the entire genre but also we had iron man come out mm-hmm. the first one robert Downey jr which did well i think the incredible hulk also came out this year not nearly as successful as iron man but still still grossed its money that's right and this film itself i think it was the second highest grossing film of the year the yes. indiana jones crystal skull behind the dark knight as aforementioned um holds a 78% rating on rotten tomatoes and 65% on metacritic and 6.1 on imdb which i feel <laughs> like the metacritic is a bit fairer yes whenever i have questions i go to metacritic because they seem to be pretty, they have their wits about them. Right. Was nominated for six Saturn Awards, yet only won for Best Costumes. It has been consistently rated as one of the worst sequels of all time, which I feel like is a bit harsh, but I can understand why it's being placed in those lists. Uh, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation banned the film, <laughs> claiming it demonizes Russians. It doesn't even demonize them because no. it never says well we it never takes Russia. a stance either no. way like communists no. are bad democracy good even like the opening where uh harrison ford sees the russians he goes russians it that i feel like the actual take was russians i hate them just yeah. like when he says nazis i hate them but you know spielberg's like oh, oh, oh we don't want to piss anyone off and uh, as we mentioned earlier, Shia LaBeouf received backlash after many people assumed he would be taking over the franchise following Harrison Ford and even criticized the film itself at the 2010 Cannes Film Festival. And this led to the falling out with Steven Spielberg. And this is what most likely caused him to not be involved with the Transformers franchise after 2011. Well, you know, if you spoke your mind, sometimes you get burnt. And I love finding things like this. This was the sub. The film itself was the subject of a frivolous lawsuit. Oh, that's hilarious! The director of what? the Institute of Archaeology in uh, Belize uh, sued Lucasfilm, Disney, and Paramount on behalf of the country of Belize for using the likeness, quote unquote, of the Mitchell Hedges skull. <laughs> now, what? the origin of the skull has been in 
been up for some debate for a long time. Okay. And there's even some speculation that the skull itself that they're talking about is a fake. Because it didn't, the first recorded appearance of it in history was showing up at some uh, British auction house in the 1930s. It just showed up? It just showed up Some guys just brought it. He brought it in and said, like, I want to sell this, please. (laughs) Give give me money. (laughs) It is an alien crystal skull. (laughs) What? Now, I can't find any information about this lawsuit after 2012. So it's probable that this lawsuit was just dismissed and was filed after the Disney acquisition. So you can make your own conclusions from the timeliness of said lawsuit. <laughs> they want that uh, Disney box. They were just thinking like, you know who's got billions right now? <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Well, also with Indiana Jones, there is a fifth one in development that is slated to be released summer of 2021. This film has been in development hell since the crystal skull they've been trying to iron out a story and from what i've seen it's gone through about seven writers seven or eight writers because it's like every three years a writer comes up and says we got it we got the story and then they get rejected so with disney's acquisition of lucasfilm i have no um high hopes you know, <laughs> Star Wars, I'm good. You know, I, if they set it in the mid-60s, I think there's a lot of interesting things they can do with the story. I think they have to go back to the idea of including Nazis in it. They're, they they probably won't, but they should. They're, well, they probably will because it's Disney, but they're not going to have a good story. Well, at this point in <laughs> history, there were a lot of Nazis who were in hiding. So to have them in the film and have them together the searching for occult artifacts, say, in, like, Mexico or even Asia, would be an interesting film. I hope. Once again, I've seen the new Star Wars films, so Bob Igor and Kathleen Kennedy has lost all my faith, so I'm just going to assume it's going to be a nostalgic whirlwind of taking tropes from Indiana Jones and seeing an old Harrison Ford run around. Well, there's also the possibility that Harrison Ford doesn't want to do the film, and... Who do you think could take over the role if Harrison Ford retires or unexpectedly dies? I mean, he has. I mean, I know you said that he that he the role dies with him, but this is Hollywood. They uh, don't just let roles die. Unfortunately, um, I would never want to see another Indiana Jones film if he goes. But I know Hollywood, so no one. But I'm sure they're either going to give it to Chris Pratt, uh, Chris Hemsworth, or probably what's that guy who plays um, Loki. Oh, Tom Hiddleston. I can see them giving Tom Hiddleston or Tom Holland, though I th- I heard that Tom Holland is going to be on the Drake. Um, yeah, the he's doing an Uncharted film. Yeah. Well, hey, he might double dip. Hey. <laughs> you know, I actually, my vote would be for Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper? Yeah. Yeah, you know, he's decent. I don't know, though, because he'd make it too emotional. Well, you never know. I mean, he is capable of doing action. I mean, he did the A-Team reboot about 10 years ago. Yeah, that, that is That was an true. exciting movie. I have to rewatch that. <laughs> I haven't seen it in forever. I mean, what bottom line is that Spielberg and Ford would have to be involved with the project if I was to commit to even seeing a new film in the series. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I think for me, just Harrison Ford, because I love him. He's like my top three favorite actors of all time. So anything he's in, I'm going to watch. Like we said, he's a snack. He is. <laughs> <laughs> but he's great. I mean, so... I, I'm going to still see the film when it comes out, absolutely. I've been waiting patiently because I love Indiana Jones, but my hopes are very low. So, Sean, what do you say we rate Indiana Jones? 
Shall we? Let's. We shall. So on our unique scale, the force-fed sci-fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party, what do you give to Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Well, this film, I would put a, uh, oh man, it's tough. I'm like a cross between would own, well, I do own it. So would own, when I first saw it when I was 17 with my buddy Seth, uh, I bought it. I saw it twice in theaters because I really enjoyed it. Later in life, after seeing, you know, I've matured, cultivated my tastes, I would bump it down to a wood watch. Um, I think since it is an Indiana Jones film, I think it's impossible to not watch it with the rest of the three prior ones because they're entertaining. Um, the film suffers due to the characterization. Characters, there's a lot of characters that have nothing to do. Uh, it's very family friendly. It kind of loses, as we said, the edge and the dark, gritty nature of what makes an Indiana Jones film interesting. The villains are just kind of there and they don't seem to have a plan. So with the lackluster, clunky storytelling plus the CGI, it's definitely a would watch. But I'm still going to watch it because I love Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? You know... The Indiana Jones franchise is near and dear to my heart. I spent many hours of my childhood pretending to be that silhouetted, whip-snapping hero <laughs> off on some exotic adventure. But this film manages to really diminish that fantasy. I question the decision to simply add aliens as this MacGuffin in the story, as well as making Dr. Jones a part of the Roswell incident as we mentioned earlier. The sci-fi elements in the film don't make a ton of sense, especially when they're put into a film like this. And this seems more like a case of fan service than the desire of making an interesting story. And Harrison Ford feels like the fish out of water. And while that could be an interesting story, it's not in this case. And for that reason, I would call it a would not watch. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Okay. And it, and it breaks my heart to have to yeah. say that about an Indiana Jones film. It really does. Yeah, okay. That's kind of, that's shocking to me. I thought it would be a wood watch, but okay. Hey. Let's wash the taste out of our mouths with this film <laughs> and pick our next one, shall we? It's time to see Major Samantha. Yeah. Who are we going to call? Major, Major Samantha. Samantha. <laughs> so we're going to enlist the help of our friendly random number generator AI to pick from a list of 118 films. And from that list, she has selected dun, 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 dun. number 63. It is a 2006 film directed by Alfonso Cuaron and starring Clive Owen. It is Children of Men. Oh, wow. Wow. This is exciting i love this film yeah that's a dense movie what this is like an indie whoa i'm stoked i love this film yes oh my god this is such a different sci-fi take (laughs) going into my level there we go all right that'll be our film for next time please watch and enjoy with us and if you enjoyed today's episode please head on over to apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review it really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, 
or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, we'll see you next time. Forcefed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design associate producer and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.